you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. Home Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. USC is rolling out a national registry of cops who've been fired or resigned because of misconduct. We'll hear what it aims to accomplish and how it'll be accessible for everyone to see. Plus, Echo Park Lake reopens in about an hour after being closed for a couple of months. Libby Dankman will be there to tell us how the park looks and what it means for LA's homelessness crisis. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com events. See you there. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Martinez. Thanks for spending your Wednesday with us. Coming up at 3 p.m. today, Echo Park Lake reopens, two months after a much-publicized closure that involved the cleaning out of dozens of unhoused people who had made uh, their home there. We'll check in on that developing story toward the end of our show. But first, the cost of encampments like the one in Echo Park. A recent report commissioned by the federal government found that cities across the country are paying millions of dollars responding to homeless encampments, be it cleaning them up, shutting them down, or providing some support. The study comes after 2020 marked the first year on record that the number of homeless individuals living outside surpassed the number of those living under some sort of shelter. Nicole Fiore is senior associate for Apt Associates, the consultancy that conducted the study on behalf of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and HUD. We spoke and she explained the biggest challenges to studying this issue is that there is not a shared universal definition for what encampments are. To really understand encampments and to move forward with the strategy, it's really important to understand the unique needs and characteristics of people living in encampments. And currently, there isn't a systematic way of collecting that data. Every two years, each community across the country that receives HUD funding for homeless service systems conducts an annual or biannual point in time count. And that looks at generally people who are staying in shelter locations and people who are unsheltered, but it doesn't actually get at the number of people who are living in encampments. So I think we're moving in that direction, but right now there's a gap in that data. When it comes to studying encampments, there's been pushes in different neighborhoods across the U.S. to have local elected officials uh, clean out the encampments. Does that make it tough sometimes to study them when, you know, maybe you try to put some kind of effort into understanding an encampment and all of a sudden gets cleaned out? In our research, the way we structured it is we selected nine cities across the country. We did telephone interviews with stakeholders and city representatives in those nine communities. Then from there, we selected four communities and did site visits where we talked to city representatives, we talked to implementation partners, we interviewed people with lived experience, and we observed I don't think in terms of research, there was really any obstacles. I will say, though, when we talk to homeless service providers and people who are doing outreach, there's a huge barrier for them when there is cleanups and closures of encampments. 
A lot of times those types of cleanups and closures really disrupt the relationships they're building with encampment residents to try to get them into supportive services or address their health conditions, get them into some sort of permanent housing. We also know from years of research that one of the biggest barriers of getting people into permanent housing is getting them document ready and getting them their eligibility status determined. So what does that mean? That means having their social security cards in hand, having their birth certificates, having some sort of income verification or homelessness verification, as well as having their critical personal possessions like medications in hand. And sometimes when cities clear encampments, some of these critical items are getting swept away and disposed of, leaving the person experiencing homelessness starting at square one and getting these documents all over again. Did you at all research the growth of encampments across the United States and what might be contributing to that? And actually, who might be living in these encampments, why they're there and who they are? Most encampment residents are adults. Some cities reported different types of subpopulations depending on the areas of the city. So, for example, San Jose reported that transition-age youth established their own encampments separate from adults. In Minneapolis, we heard that residents of one of their largest encampments were primarily Native American. In some cities, people living in encampments have higher rates of disability conditions. So it really depends on the city and then the type of setting in that city. One important consideration that we found through our research is that people living in encampments often are longtime residents and often have ties to the community where the encampment is located. For example, I interviewed a woman in San Jose who grew up in the neighborhood where her encampment was set up. And she actually went to school down the street, but because of high rental rates in that area of San Jose, she wasn't able to afford housing in that area anymore. We're talking to Nicole Fiore, Senior Associate for the Consultancy Apt Associates and co-author of a recent report on homeless encampments. All right, now to the findings, Nicole. How are cities responding to encampments and how much is it costing? Really, in the cities we studied, there was a shortage of affordable housing in these metro areas combined with a lack of sufficient resources to end homelessness, prevent homelessness, and a shortage of shelter beds, interim housing beds. In the places where there were open or accessible shelter beds, people are actually choosing to stay in encampments rather to stay in these beds. You know, we ask the question, well, well, why is that? So one is restrictions and requirements of the shelters. So for example, no pets, no partners. They may be single gender. Um, There may be sobriety requirements. Another thing were the conditions at the shelter. Many people had access to shelters in the past, but something happened. They didn't feel safe. They didn't have any autonomy. One of the key findings of the study is that in most encampments, there is a real sense of community where residents of the encampments are coming together. They're taking care of each other. I would say that the one other additional finding we found is there was a convergence around a common strategy, which was clearance closure with support. So what we mean by that is clearance, so removing the belongings, and with closure, fencing it off so people don't return, and providing support throughout the process. One thing to think about is that cities are often using different approaches to encampments. So for example, even if a city says that their approach is cleaning and clearing with support, they may not always use that for every encampment that you see. And when it comes to money, uh, you mentioned budget. Uh, generally, what's the range we're talking about in terms of what different cities are spending and their response to encampments? So we collected cost information at four cities, Chicago, Illinois, Houston, Texas, San Jose, California, and Tacoma, Washington. The highest total that we saw was in San Jose, California, which was about $8.5 million in fiscal year 2019. The lowest we saw was in Houston, Texas, for about $3.4 million over fiscal year 19. But then if you look at cost per unsheltered person homeless, there was a range. It, Tacoma, Washington was actually spending the most per person at around $6,000 per person. And San Jose, because they have a larger unsheltered population, was spending close to $1,000 per person. I would say that each city was spending the majority of their funding on different things. So for example, in Tacoma, Washington, they were spending around 60% of their funding for a navigation center or a stability site. In Chicago, they were spending close to 85% of their funding on outreach efforts. And in San Jose, around 60% of their funding 
was going into the cleaning of encampments and the closures of encampments. Um, in the four cities that we visited, the largest funder of encampment responses were the city government. Now, here in Los Angeles, the city's response to homeless encampments uh, became front and center. That was back in March when uh, the city set out to remove an encampment of unhoused people in Echo Park Lake. Nicole, I know L.A. was not part of this study, but from your broader research, what's been L.A.'s approach to responding to homeless encampments? Echo Park um, kind of followed what we were seeing in the convergence of the other four cities, which was clearing closure with support. We've seen documentation in different media outlets of the city and the counties and Lassa's approach to closing Echo Park and trying to really link the people in Echo Park with some sort of interim housing situation, getting them connected to support services. So I think, you know, it follows various methods. Like you had said, LA is not one of the study sites. So um, I don't know specifically if that is the city's approach to all encampments or if they had very approaches. I will also say that Echo Park is the perfect example of what decades of disinvestment in affordable housing, supportive services, and extreme poverty in Los Angeles has done to the city and the people who call it home. At this point, decades later, homelessness impacts everyone. The focus needs to be on the people who are experiencing unsheltered homelessness and who are rapidly deteriorating on the streets and how to develop affordable and deeply affordable housing across the community to get people into permanent housing. I've done a lot of research on Los Angeles's response to homelessness over the past several years. And I would say for the past five years or so, the city of Los Angeles, the county of Los Angeles, and now more recently, the state of California, has significantly invested in responses to end and prevent homelessness. There is more funding, more services, and more programs than ever before. However, after decades of insufficient investments in this area, coupled with the increasing housing costs in L.A. County, it's going to take a while to play catch up in this game. That's Nicole Fiore, Senior Associate for the Consultancy Apt Associates and co-author of a recent report titled Exploring Homelessness Among People Living in Encampments and Associated Cost. Nicole, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. And just FYI, speaking of Echo Park Lake, it's going to reopen in about 45 minutes. Libby Dankman will be there kind of toward the end of take two to uh, set the scene for us and what's going on over there at Echo Park. Moving on, the Metropolitan Water District is Southern California's largest supplier of H2O. But current divisions over the next generation of leadership there have highlighted competing philosophies when it comes to drought management. Plus, President Biden announced plans for a wind energy development to plan off the coast of California. That was yesterday. Sammy Roth covered energy for the LA Times. He's been writing all about this. Sammy, welcome back. Hey, happy to be here. All right. uh, You reported on uh, some tumult going on at uh, the Metropolitan Water District. What's happening with management over there? Yeah, so they uh, they've been led by this guy named Jeff Keitlinger for about 15 years, pretty you know powerful and, and influential figure in in Western Water at this point. And uh, he's retiring, and they've been going through this extended sort of behind the scenes process of figuring out who his replacement's going to be. Um, what I learned and, and reported today was that there was a vote taken sort of behind the scenes and a private session of their board earlier this month where they. Uh, chose a guy named Adel Hagek Khalil to be their uh, new general manager. He's the head of the Bureau of Street Services in Los Angeles. Um, but there's a lot of dissent, and it was a, a close vote. And the second place finisher was Pat Mulroy, who's this sort of legendary former head of the, the Southern Nevada Water Agency, who's been involved with the growth of Las Vegas for a, a long time. So there's this this struggle that's still playing out behind the scenes. What's the uh, dissent uh, against Hagek Khalil's uh, possibility on this? So, so with Haja Khalil, I mean, the argument for him, um, the L.A., you know, sort of representatives on, on this board uh, and, and Mayor Garcetti have, uh, you know, seem to have wanted him to get the job. Uh, he's sort of seen as being more favorable to you know, importing less water from faraway places like the, the Colorado River or Northern California and getting more from recycling and capturing rainwater and, and types of initiatives that uh, Garcetti has been working on. The argument against him from some of these other uh, board members is that they just don't think he's experienced enough mm-hmm. in, in the stuff this agency typically does. I mean, he has 
you know, unlike Pat Mulvey, he's not sort of a, a well-known figure in the Western water landscape already. Yeah. Okay. So no secret the state is facing worsening drought conditions. So what does this uh, mean for uh, MWD's current plan to keep water flowing for Southern Californians? Well, I mean, MWD has has banked quite a bit of water uh, over the last few years, and I mean that's a credit both to the uh, you know the diversity of the the supply sources that that it has, and also to the conservation work that's you know at least starting to happen in, in Southern California, you know, tearing out lawns and such. So we we've got you know enough water in storage right now to probably get us through a, at least a couple years of drought here. Um, this decision is is it really I think more about the long term, about you know what uh, you know what direction this agency is is going to go in. When it come back to Haji Khalil for a second, I mean, would he be like a fresh, I mean, I guess we're always thinking about like fresh new voices when it comes to any kind of policy or any kind of government agency. Would he be a fresh new voice? I know he's inexperienced. At least that's what his detractors say. But is there any kind of freshness to his hiring if this happens? I mean, that's certainly one of the arguments I've heard. I mean, this is an agency that's been, uh, you know, very focused for a long time on this sort of traditional sort of large scale water infrastructure, the Colorado River Aqueduct, the, uh, you know, the state water project from the north. And I mean, that's that's sort of starting to change regardless. There's, you know, those sources are becoming less reliable with, with climate change. There's going to have to be more focus on local supply. But but yes, I mean, part of the argument for him is that he would really, uh, you know, push the agency more in that direction. And another thing to keep in mind, I mean, this is an agency that uh, has had, you know, really serious issues with uh, with sexual harassment that, that uh, the Times has been reporting on. So there's a sense as well that bringing an outsider in might be helpful to sort of, you know, clear the air and start fresh on, on that front. When might all of this shake out? They are supposed to take uh, their final vote to offer a contract uh, to Haja Khalil on June the 8th. So if there was some kind of power play behind the scenes to get that changed. It would it would be between now and June the 8th. We're talking to LA Times energy reporter Sammy Roth about a potential power struggle at Southern California's largest water supplier. But uh, Sammy, while we got you here, uh, President Trump announced a plan to develop wind power off the California coast. Can you give us a, a summary of the proposal and, and break down how achievable it might be? Um, I can, although I think you probably meant President Biden there. What did I say? Uh, you said President Trump, but that's okay. Oh it, takes a, it takes a while to get used to. Um, no, that, this is a, that's uh, no excuse. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's been in all the papers. It, uh, indeed. Um, no, this is a it's a pretty big announcement that was made yesterday between uh, the, the Biden folks and the state of California. They they're talking about opening up 250,000 acres off sort of the, the central coast of the state uh, to wind development. Um, there's potential, they say, for uh, about 4,600 megawatts of, of power there, which would be you know roughly enough to, to power about a million and a half homes. Um you know, it, it's going to be a long process. Uh, I mean, these things are going to go through. I mean, first of all, there needs to be a lease sale where developers are going to bid on the rights. They need to narrow down the locations of, you know, the specific locations. It's not going to be the entirety of this, you know, hundreds of square mile area. And then there are going to be environmental reviews that take a while and, and probably lawsuits as well, frankly, from, you know, folks who, who don't want to look at it from the coast or who have concerns about fishing resources, for instance. So it's, you know, the, the estimates I've heard is that it's probably still, you know, a decade out before we see, you know, a, a significant amount of stuff getting built. But but if it happens, it could uh, really go a long way towards helping get fossil fuels off the power grid. I love that, Sammy. If it bothers my eye line, I don't, I don't want to see it, but that's that's something else we can discuss. Well, that, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a serious issue. Yeah. In fact, I'm writing more about that later this week. I, I think that if we're going to really turn over, you know, our, our energy systems and replace fossil fuels with renewables, there's going to be a lot of questions, hard questions in a lot of places about, you know, how does the landscape look and how is that going to change? And I think we're going to need to deal with that. Jobs, though, is this something that can uh, that Californians can cash in with more jobs? Yeah, I mean, the the Biden administration, I think, has a, a national estimate that if their uh, their, you know, sort of national target was met, that there could be uh, 70 or 80,000 um, jobs created both both in this industry and in sort of uh, related economic activity. I mean, to be seen how the numbers work out, but uh, but the you know the big organized labor groups in California are certainly quite excited and have been pushing this timeline for making something happen here on that. And so the first lease sales are expected uh, no sooner than two thousand and twenty two. So we'll uh, you know we'll probably have at least a year to wait here before we see more specifics. And again, probably you know eight, nine, ten years before we actually see large projects getting built. And one more thing really quick, Sammy, uh, Gavin Newsom, governor of California, what has he uh, said or reacted to this? Um, I mean, he's very happy. This was, uh, you know, something that was more challenging to get done during the Trump administration. He says this could be a game changer. And I'm, 
I'm sure one of the things he's thinking about is that these are, you know, wind facilities that could help us keep the lights on after dark, which is something that California has been having a, a little trouble with lately. Sammy, I was born in the Nixon administration, so I'm glad I, I don't still have that in my head. <laughs> Otherwise, I got to start brushing up on stuff. Sammy Roth, the LA Times staff writer covering energy. You can read both of his pieces on Biden's win announcement and what's happening at MWD at LATimes.com. Sammy, as always, thank you very much. Thanks, eh? All right. University of Southern California, USC, is rolling out a national registry of cops who've been fired or reassigned because of misconduct. It's called Law Enforcement Work Inquiry System, or LEWIS, named after the late U.S. congressman and civil rights leader John Lewis. We're going to hear what it aims to accomplish and how it'll be accessible for everyone to see. That's next when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Arole is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. In Lumert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA is a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. Ami Martinez. We continue our conversation on police reform by looking at a new initiative coming out of the University of Southern California. It's a national registry to track police misconduct. The Lewis Registry stands for Law Enforcement Work Inquiry System and is named after the late U.S. Congressman and Civil Rights Leader John Lewis. It's launching later this year, and it'll allow people to find out if an officer has been fired or resigned due to misconduct. Here to tell us more about it is Errol Southers. He's the director of the Safe Communities Institute at the USC Sol Price School of Public Policy and founded the registry. Errol, welcome back. Thank you very much. All right. So what specific types of misconduct uh, will this registry track? Well, we will be tracking, obviously, excessive force, corruption, uh, violent extremism, domestic violence, sexual assault, physical assault and harassment, perjury, falsifying a police report, planting or destroying evidence, and also affiliation with a hate organization or an extremist organization. And how are you getting the information for the registry to put, to put into the registry? This information is going to come from open source, public information, uh, media sources, court documents. We're doing that because we are very concerned, obviously, about officer safety. I'm a veteran of three law enforcement agencies, including the FBI. Mm -hmm. So we would only include information linking to the individual that's been made publicly available already. Okay. How would the data then be collected and compiled and added to the registry? So we have researchers here at, at USC that are working with us. They're going state by state, scouring um, media announcements and documents that are in the public domain to see if officers are being fired. They're entering it based on the officer's name. Uh, as much information as we can get, obviously, if we get an age, the agency, the causal factor for their termination or resignation um, in lieu of termination, and then a link to the public source that gave us the information. And we're using at least two sources so we can vet it through and make sure it's accurate. Now, you mentioned how you're a veteran, Errol, of three different law enforcement agencies. How do you envision police using this registry? Well, I'll tell you, I wish I had a Lewis registry when I used to be a background investigator at Santa Monica Police Department, because what will happen now is when someone comes in and applies, I can look at that registry and see if there's a name match 
to ask that person if we need to have a deeper conversation. When officers get fired, um, they're protected uh, by the Peace Officer Bill of Rights. There are five states, by the way, that if you get fired, and California is one of them, that you keep your what's called a post certificate in California. It stands for Peace Officer Standards and Training. They're the certifying agency for the state. You keep your post certificate for three more years after you're fired. So you, you can go and work somewhere else. Yeah. So now background investigators will be able to do this. But more importantly, we will have a law enforcement password protected encrypted access for law enforcement where they'll have additional information because we'll be looking at patterns and trends and causal factors that might lead these officers to get into trouble. And perhaps we can come up with some predictive indicators so we can do, reduce the risk of that happening. And you know, Errol, correct me if I'm wrong, but that sounds like systemic change. Well, thank you. Um, we think it is systemic change because, quite frankly, the change that we really need to make that many people don't want to admit to is a culture change. And culture change only comes when you affect the most important element of culture, which are the people that make up the culture. And so we think it'll be systemic. It's something that's got support from law enforcement. It's got support from community organizations and legislators on both sides of the aisle. And we're really hoping to make a real change at this point. And how do you envision, Errol, the public using this? That's a great question. And by the way, the public is already using it. Um, Because we've been on social media, they are sending us links to officers in states that have been fired that we didn't know about. Yesterday, when we had the announcement, we had a person talk to us about two different agencies in California where officers had been fired from one. We're now applying to the other. We don't know how she was right, but she was, and, and sent us a link to the articles. Oh, wow. So the public now will have a chance to see who those officers are. And if they're being hired by the agencies in their own municipality, it's time to have a conversation with the chief of the mayor to ask why. So citizen journalism then. Absolutely. We are counting on citizens to be involved in this because we want them to help make the agencies more accountable, uh, more transparent. But most importantly, what we'll see from this, I think, is an increase in public trust in law enforcement because the transparency factor will be more apparent. I saw there are two separate portals for the public and then one for police agencies. What are the differences between the two? The differences are that the public will have a very basic name, location, agency, causal factor for the termination, when it happened, and a link to the public source. The law enforcement side, we hope to get more detailed information. For example, we want to know how many years on. Was that officer working a special watch or a special detail? What shift did they work? We're hoping that chiefs may use some of our data analytics to determine their own policies. You know, when I work gangs, in Santa Monica, you could only be on the gang unit for two years. And when you work narcotics, you could only work narcotics for three years. If we find that after maybe five years, using this as an example, that officers tend to be more prone to complaints or more prone to problems, chiefs may decide to have departmental policies where they put caps on service and specialized details because they want to keep their officers out of trouble. Out of curiosity, uh, Errol, why were there limits on, on the amount of time spent in these, uh, in these units? Quite frankly, the only reason there were limits is so more people could have access and exposure to be able to participate Uh, in them. Um, I could tell you, I would have worked gangs from the time I got assigned to the time I had to go back to patrol. Um, And most officers, when they get assigned to specialized units like gangs or motors or canines, they love those details and they'll stay on there forever. But it doesn't give people an opportunity in the department to move around. It doesn't give an opportunity to newer officers to have access to those details. So it's really just a fairness and equity issue with regards to opportunities, more specialized work. We're talking to Errol Southers, director of the Safe Communities Institute at USC's uh, Price School, Soul Price School of Public Policy about a national registry that he founded to track police officers accused of misconduct. Uh, given that personnel records are often private, Errol, how confident are you that this registry is as comprehensive as it could be? Well, it won't be as comprehensive as it could be for the reason you just explained. I mean, we can, we're only going to be able to obtain the information that's public. We won't be able to get into other things that might give us more data as it relates to causal factors. We think we'll have enough, of course, to come up with some predictive indicators. But with all due respect to privacy and and safety, uh, we think we'll have enough information to do some real analysis and come up with some solid information with regards to evidence-based practices that could be from this. Yeah, well, I think of the alternative before this registry, which was no information, pretty much. 
That's correct. And, and I'll give you a, a classic example of a horror story. In New Jersey, there's an officer who's 32 years old. He is now working at his ninth department. He has been fired by three departments. So you have to ask yourself, why is this individual still working? And he shouldn't be. Yeah. But he's doing it because New Jersey is another one of those five states when you get fired, you can go to another department. And he is still out there and creating havoc in the communities that he's working in. And one of the things, the things that at least stands out to me when it comes to having the public involved, we've seen the last few years how active people want to be in their communities as it relates to police reform. And this is an example. This could be a tool that citizens can use to, to really be active in who is in their community as a police officer. You are absolutely correct. I mean, I'll just use the way you described it to just put it into one term. It's a grassroots movement. And we are hoping the community will get engaged. They should know who's serving them and, and protecting them. And we hope that starts to build a bridge. I mean, I've got a greater level of confidence if I live in a city and that city is a subscriber and using the Lewis Registry. Hey, there are 18,000 police departments across the country. Many have adopted reforms recently, yet misconduct continues to happen. Errol, I'm sure you know this. I'm wondering mm -hmm. how much do you incentivize police agencies to use this database and avoid hiring officers with records of misconduct? Because we always hear about how you know police officers will defend their own, not crossing that blue line. That's very true. So this is where, again, the community becomes a huge element here in terms of influencing and incentivizing agencies to do it. I think that they should hold their chiefs and their mayors accountable. Um, I don't want to quote the subscription rate we're going to be having for law enforcement, but I'll tell you that what we're working with right now on a per state basis, at the price point we're looking at, there are 509 agencies in the state of California. They would get the Lewis registry for about $60 a year. Mm. If we go to Rhode Island, which has about 48 agencies in the state, they would get the registry for about $650 a year. In other words, it is not cost prohibitive. There is no reason to not subscribe to the Lewis registry, especially knowing now how much money we're going to save in background investigator time and agency money to find out along the process of the application, that that person is not qualified or eligible to work there. And people will be asking their police department, are you are you signed up for this or not? And actually, <laughs> police departments could use it as a source of uh, community trust. Hey, we're, we're involved with this. You, know? you are absolutely correct. I'm hoping both things happen. I hope that people ask their chiefs, are you subscribed to the Lewis Registry? And I'm also hoping that chief will say to the mayor or their city council, look, Everybody's being screened through the Lewis Registry in addition to our regular background check process. And again, the trust level starts to go up. That's Errol Southers, director of the Safe Communities Institute at USC Sol Price School of Public Policy. On the National Lewis Registry, it tracks police officers who have been fired or resigned due to misconduct. Errol, thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. If only the Amazon jungle could be growing and expanding the same way Amazon the company is. I mean, wouldn't that be cool? Anyway, find out how Amazon's latest big buy will deliver more Hollywood to people's streaming front door. That's next when Take Two continues. Stay with us. All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. I've got a great big bundle of love And I have saved it all for you Oh, but I'm gonna demand a little flavor Honey, let your love Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and wherever you get your podcasts, Sammy Martinez. Amazon has acquired MGM for a price tag of nearly $9 bucks, though the entirety of the James Bond franchise is not included. Plus, 
How are studios feeling as movie releases come back to the big screen this summer? For more on this, uh, let's go on the lot. Stick your head out and yell. You want a chocolate? All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Joining us, as always, is Rebecca Keegan, Senior Editor for Film for The Hollywood Reporter. All right, Rebecca, official Amazon buying MGM Studios for $8.45 billion. I wouldn't have taken anything less than nine myself, but that's just me. What are the specifics of this acquisition? Well, I mean, first of all, it feels to me pretty symbolic that Amazon, the ultimate ultimate digital disruptor of so many other industries, has bought MGM this 97-year-old movie studio, <laughs> most associated with the classic Hollywood era. I mean, now MGM is much diminished from what it was in that era. They've sold their studio a lot to Sony, much of their library to Warners, but they still have some very coveted intellectual properties, including James Bond and Rocky and a big catalog, which are things that Amazon needs to grow the audience for Amazon Prime. What does MGM get out of this? Well, MGM has these titles, uh, you know, more than 4,000 movies, more than 17,000 TV shows in its catalog, but it doesn't have the sort of money and reach to push them out, the distribution channels. And of course, that's what Amazon brings is this enormous audience and these very, very deep pockets in order to develop new films and TV shows from these characters and to just populate its service with the older titles. You know, there's an episode of Seinfeld, Rebecca, I don't know if you ever watched Seinfeld, where Jerry gets George a ticket to the Super Bowl. And George, being the curmudgeon that he is, says, great, you just gave me a bill because i got to buy new clothes, i got to buy new luggage, instead of being happy for the <laughs> Super Bowl ticket. So for Amazon, I'm wondering, I mean, is this just mean more stuff that I have to like just you know swipe through to finally find something to watch? Is it going to be one of those things where it's endless looking for things? Oh, Is it really that hard? I mean, honestly, if you've had the experience of wanting to find a sort of older movie or TV show somewhere to stream and and found it difficult, now all of these MGM titles that are post, it's like post mid 80s, you will be able to find um, on Amazon. But, you know, it's I, I, I think it's interesting to ask, like, is this old sort of shell of a studio worth the almost $9 billion that Amazon paid for it? I mean, that's, as I said, they've gotten a lot. They've, you know, much of their library is gone. So you have to ask yourself, what is the environment where Amazon was willing to pay this much money for this? Um, Other companies, including Apple, looked at MGM and thought it was worth maybe 5 billion, maybe 6 billion. Um, So it's, you know, it kind of suggests just how much money Amazon has, how much they've gotten from you and me and everybody else during the pandemic. Uh, their revenue for the first quarter of 2021 was up 44% to $108.5 billion. So this is not a lot of money for them. There's the letter A in complain for a reason. See, that's why it's there. Uh, and you mentioned too, like, so James Bond, um, they don't yeah. own the full ownership of that Bond franchise. I know that uh, the producer uh, of, of uh, 007, Barbara Broccoli, is very protective over how James Bond is is used. So, I mean, yeah, it, mm-hmm. uh, it made me wonder if, if you don't get the whole, you know, kit and caboodle, why would you even pay that much? Well, they they will be able to, together with Barbara Broccoli and her um, half-sibling, Michael G. Wilson, who were the heirs of the original producer, uh, Albert Broccoli, they will be able to uh, put Bond movies on their service. Uh, but interestingly, the um, Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson issued a statement today saying that new Bond movies will continue to get a worldwide uh, theatrical release. So you can see a world where um, you can watch old Bond movies on Amazon, uh, but the new movies will still get what we're used to in terms of theatrical release. Interesting. It'll be interesting to see if Amazon is able to convince the Broccoli's to develop, say, a TV show show from the Bond franchise, which they've been um, predominantly resistant to TV series, alternative universe where Bond can be, I don't know, maybe black or brown or Asian or something, you know, something, anything different than what it already has been for decades. Right, right. Well, and even, I mean, this latest Bond movie, which has been pushed back multiple times because of the pandemic, but is supposed to hit theaters, um, October 8th. Uh, a, a lot of people think that the role will be 
recast after that. This that this will be this will be Daniel Craig's last Bond film, and that when the role is recast, it will be a different kind of a hero. So even in the theatrical release, never mind if there are to be spinoffs for a series or something else. Talking to Rebecca Keegan of the Hollywood Reporter. All right, now let's head to the movie theaters as more folks uh, are starting to feel more comfortable about returning to the big screen. What can studios expect at the box office this summer? Well, polling indicates people are getting more and more comfortable with the idea of going to movie theaters again. I know you're still stewing about this, aren't you? But, you know, according to the National Research Group, at the lowest point early January, the comfort level among U.S. consumers with going to the movies was 42 percent. Now it's 71 percent. It's expected to reach 80 percent or more by June, which is when In the Heights and F9 open domestically. But where are you at? When are you going to go to the theater? Oh, boy. So I know In the Heights for you. That's your movie, right? That's your that's In the, the one theater. I'm, that's putting my flag in on. That's yep. the Keegan comeback trail mm-hmm. <laughs> movie, right? Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I still don't know. I still don't know. It's You're driving me crazy. Out. I'm frozen. And it's really it's starting to annoy me. I got to be honest. I got to unload some some psychological baggage on you, Rebecca, for a second. <laughs> I don't know why. There should have been a movie by now. I'm fully vaccinated. You know, I mm-hmm. why why can't I pull the trigger on this? It's driving me I nuts. Don't know. Well, clearly you're not alone. I mean, look, 71% of people are saying they're willing to go back to theaters. That means 29% of people aren't. So some people are feeling more cautious about it. I do think of you as someone who was used, used to go to the movies to see Twice a week, twice or, I mean, everything, whatever, (laughs) art house, blockbuster, you name it. Yeah. Uh, Often things that just would not even get me to like sit down on my couch, you would go to a theater for. So it is interesting that you're feeling this resistance. I'll be, I'm dying to know what the movie will be that will finally drag you back. Every year, the Hollywood box office would send me a thank you note. For keeping <laughs> the industry afloat. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, you know, Universal's latest Fast and Furious uh, installment, that's F9, that debuted in China last Friday, what, $136 million weekend. So it seems like there is going to be reason for optimism this summer, right? I mean, it just seems like it, it, this is going to be finally the time where Hollywood kind of gets its mojo back. Yeah. Well, interestingly, you know, that number that you shared was a Chinese number. In China, the. Um, percent of moviegoers who feel comfortable going back is 98 percent but certainly this the success of f9 internationally suggests that these tent poles the studios have been holding back for over a year now are going to bring audiences back to theaters that people are eager to go if there are movies that that attract them um now at, at the same time that there's reason for optimism some studios are hedging their bets i mean if you look at Disney's plans for Black Widow, it's releasing it theatrically, but also will have a sort of premium priced option to watch it on its streaming service. Um, Universal doing the same with the Boss Baby sequel. So for the summer, at least, studios are still kind of hedging their bets. I already already took the day off for Flash 2022 when when that movie comes out. So that that for sure will be it, but hopefully something before that. I hope you're not waiting till 2022. Um, eh? I hope that something lures you before that. That's Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. Rebecca, thanks a lot. Thanks, Egg. If I go a million miles away I'd write a letter I'm not kidding. It's a big problem. (laughs) I used to go to two or three movies a week Sometimes 10 a month, just that's my favorite place to be, more than even a sporting event. But I just can't seem to pull the trigger quite yet. Hopefully, hopefully I'll decide soon. All right, Echo Park Lake opens in about, what, 12, 13 minutes from now after being closed for a couple of months. Libby Dankman is there, and she's going to tell us uh, first how the park looks and what this all means for L.A.'s homelessness crisis. That's next when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. The journalists of L.A.ist work for you. I'm LAS correspondent Frank Stoltz. With Democracy at a Crossroads, my job is to cover civics and democracy from the voters' perspective. I examine who holds power, how they wield it, and how that affects all of us across Southern California. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism.
Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm e. Martinez. For anyone who follows news about L.A.'s homelessness crisis, today is a day that might have been circled on a calendar. Two months ago, the 29-acre space at Echo Park Lake was closed off to the public for repairs. But in the process, dozens of people living in tents on the property were forced to move. The saga has pitted the rights of L.A.'s unhoused against the rights of local homeowners and has been held up as an example of how the city has handled, or some say mishandled, the homelessness situation. KPCC senior politics reporter Libby Dankman is at Echo Park Lake right now. Uh, Libby, I want to get uh, to, to what's happening now at the park, but remind us of what happened to the many unhoused people who were living there a couple of months ago. Hi, A. Well, there were several hundred people, a couple hundred people living at the lake at its highest point uh, last year during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. They lived in tents along the north shore of the lake, which is close to where I'm standing right now. Um, they, about 160 people were offered an, an accepted housing with LASA, Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority. And that was mostly through Project Room Key, which are city-run hotels, temporary rooms that people can go. Um, they do have restrictions. There are 7 p.m. curfews at those hotels. Um, but for a lot of people, that was a solution that worked for them. They left their tents and moved into a hotel. Now, there are dozens of people we don't know what happened uh, to because LASA so far has not released that information um, and possibly did not keep track of, of some of the folks who simply decided not to uh, engage with LASA on those services. So, um, you know, it's an open question that the 160 people who took Project Room Key, we also don't know who are still in those rooms because LASA has not provided that information. You know, some praised the handling of this situation. Others criticized it uh, two months later, Libby. I mean, what's what's the view on whether moving these people was indeed carried out in the best way for most, if not all, involved? That is a question. You get a different answer every time you speak to a different member of this community, really. I spoke to an unhoused woman who has lived in Echo Park for 30 years. She became unhoused in October, and she is still traumatized by the very heavy-handed police response that shut down this park in March. And she is still sad that she lost what she considered her community and her friends uh, that lived here at the lake. Now, she also says she was safer when she was in this community because uh, she had people to watch out for her tent. She had people to watch out for her. But if you speak to Councilmember Mitch O'Farrell, who represents this area, he really dismisses this idea that it was some kind of um, supportive, safe community. He says that there were drug overdoses in the park. There were uh, people who were taking advantage of the homeless, scamming them or, or charging them rent for tents. So, you know, a lot of neighbors I spoke to say they don't like the way the operation was conducted because of the heavy police presence. But they were also frustrated that the protesters who showed up and and clashed with police, um, they say didn't understand what what the majority of neighbors here wanted. Uh, Again, it's just everyone you speak to, eh, you get a a different answer on that. We're talking to KPCC's politics reporter Libby Dankman live at Echo Park Lake. Uh, All right, now to the cleanup that closed down the park. Uh, How'd it go? This park is looking pretty spiffy. There's a lot of resodding that still has to kind of take root. So there are parts of the park that um, are fenced off internally to keep people off the grass. The biggest thing people will notice, though, is that there is still an external uh, chain link fence around the entire perimeter of Echo Park Lake. Now, this was never there before. You used to be able to access the park at any, uh, you know, any point. But now there are only four entrances. And that is a temporary situation, according to the director of Rec and Parks, the general manager there. He says that the fences will hopefully gradually come down with consultation with the neighbors. But it is unusual to see this great big fence blocking off access to Echo Park Lake, which we know uh, is typically open. Um, and, and that is to ease the enforcement of the closing time of the park, which is technically 10.30 p.m. Not supposed to be any any camping after 10.30 p.m., and the city says it will be enforcing that now. I figured, Libby, that, okay, once it's open, it's open. I mean, <laughs> open, literally, like the park is wide open. I'm, I'm surprised that the fence is still up there. You know, a lot of folks, I think, are surprised. I think that this was a solution for city to 
try to gradually in stages reopen and also mm. discourage people from moving back in with their tents right away. Um, there are a number of park rangers on site here today, actually, some mounted park rangers. Um, and there is going to be a private security firm contracted that will also partner with LAPD and park rangers to patrol the park. There are new um, surveillance cameras, new camera system that's been installed. Um, a lot of different things that are going towards uh, trying to enforce this hours of the park between 10.30 p.m. and 5 a.m. It's closed. You can't sleep here. Um, but I think a lot of neighbors share that opinion, A, that it's kind of a bummer to see this this big chain link fence still blocking off access to Echo Park Lake. I mean, the beauty of the lake, that's the whole allure of it. That's the whole point of, of going to it, to see a chain link fence, I think, is probably an eyesore. But I guess, okay, we'll see if it comes down eventually. Uh, what Four more minutes, uh, Libby, before the park opens. Uh, what kind of scene is unfolding down there? What, what can we expect in the next hour? Yeah, so there are a number of city officials that have been answering reporter questions here. Now, right outside the single entrance that they allowed media through for this preview, um, there are a number of folks from the community gathering. I spoke to uh, a couple gentlemen who say they just love the park. They, they came to be here when it first reopened. Um, but there are also community activists, uh, you know, a candidate for city council whom I saw uh, getting ready to, to enter the park. You know, these are folks who really want their voices uh, to be heard in this process, and they're very upset by the way the homeless community was uprooted here. We also know that there are unhoused folks who will be joining um, a, a press conference here in about an hour to talk about the conditions in Project Room Key, um, which they say is oppressive, and they, they say that the offer of housing uh, for the folks who lived in Echo Park Lake was not sufficient and not a realistic option for a lot of people and they want their voices to be heard here so um you know it's a big open park right now we expect you know folks to show up um both just to enjoy the park but also to talk about what happened and and how it all unfolded one last thing libby uh, while we got you there's a big hearing tomorrow about la's homelessness situation what should we be watching out for yes david o'carter the federal judge who has been so active and um, issued some sweeping orders in Orange County and, and now also in Los Angeles County, is holding a hearing. Uh, his injunction, which was going to put a billion dollars of homelessness spending on hold and, uh, you know, really put L.A. County and city under a microscope for how they spend and and the sources of revenue for their homelessness spending, that was put on hold by the Ninth Circuit. Now Carter is going to hear from the county, from stakeholders from the LA Alliance, which is uh, business owners and people who live downtown who originally filed a lawsuit against the city and county on their handling of homelessness. And I mean, I'm expecting I'll be in the courtroom tomorrow morning. I'm expecting it to be, uh, you know, a scene because Carter never disappoints in that on that front. If you got time, Libby, get on one of those swan paddle boats. Have some fun at the park if you can if you can afford the time. That's KPCC senior politics reporter Libby Dagman. Libby, thanks a lot. Thanks, A. All right, that's going to do it for Take Two today. Just find us wherever you get your podcast. We're also on Twitter at Take Two. I'm there as well at A Martinez LA. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Marketplace is next.